really can't see far away. Um, so I need them because I want to be able to look at um, some some of my notes. Um, so yeah, how are you guys doing? Okay? Good, 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 good. Um, so today I wanted to speak to you guys about the art of mercy. Um, so let me ask everybody in the room, on a scale of 1 to 10, um, if I was to say how merciful are you, where would you rate yourself? You don't need to say a number, don't need to say it out, don't need to say it out, just keep it in your mind. If I was to ask you the question, how merciful are you on a scale of 1 to 10? So when someone is tailing you on the M11 or on the A12 or when a work colleague emails you um, about an uncompleted task and unnecessarily copies in your manager or when someone owes you money and they post themselves on social media on holiday or in front of a luxury car or when you're walking in Liverpool Street and people are walking in front of you really slowly and you're really trying to get to where you're going to get in pizza. How long does it take to set you off? Um, how much do you let slide? And again, I'll ask the question on a scale of 1 to 10, where do you rate yourself? How merciful are you? So what I want you to guys to do is turn to your neighbour and say, I think the number you're making up is false. Very. <laughs> Oh, good. There we go. Um, and I want you guys to think about another scenario. Um, and we're going to come back to this in a minute. But imagine you spend every day with someone for, let's say, about four years. Um, and imagine you and that person went to a function. And at that function, you met someone who kind of seemed like they didn't really have much about them. Probably, you'd argue, probably looked somewhat almost homeless, for example. And imagine that person approached you um, in front of your friend that you'd been hanging around with for four years and said, you know what, I appreciate everything you've done. And I know you've got loads to do. I know you've got loads of stuff going on for people like me. So I want to give you about a year's worth of my wages. And imagine your friend that you've been with for four years, you've been really close with, says... What the heck? What are you doing? Why are you giving, why are you giving it to him? You can give it to other people. There's loads of other people out there who really need it. Um, and imagine, let's say, a couple, a couple months go by, that event goes, goes, and that friend who was there with you um, is suddenly short of cash and decides, actually, they're going to report you for committing fraud um, to the police because the police are about to pay him about four months' worth of wages. What would you do when that friend of yours, um, well, when you, when you get out of prison, for example, let's say he goes to prison, what would you do? What would you do about that friend? Well, let's say, let's say, let's say he, he came back and he begged for your forgiveness. What would you do? Keep that in your mind. <laughs> so, um, obviously, when we talk about mercy, we can't not do without thinking about what the Oxford Dictionary has to say. So, um, the definition of mercy is a kind or forgiving attitude towards someone that you have the power to harm or the right to punish. Another definition for it is an event or situation to be grateful for, usually because it stops something unpleasant from happening. We all have an idea of what mercy is, or at least we all think 
we know when um, mercy is required and when it isn't. Uh, we all think we know where someone is taking a mickey and therefore we think where, where, where someone is being taken for a fall. And so in our minds, we know exactly when to give mercy and when not to give mercy. But that would look different for every one of you. For everyone, it's going to look different at what point do, we, do I say I'm being taken a mickey out of and what point do I continue to have mercy. And hence why we have this phrase that says, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And it's the idea that actually, if I forgive you more than once, I'm the fool. Somehow I'm doing wrong. Somehow I've, I've let myself down. But then it's important to think about then what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about mercy for us as Christians? Well, the Hebrew translation of the word mercy is raham. Um, it's literally pronounced that, raham. Um, and... Basically, the, um, the word shares the sort of the, the three-letter root word of womb. So the idea is that actually um, God's mercy towards humanity is, denotes the kind of same kind of protection that a baby would have when it's in its mother's womb. And that's how actually the, uh, the Hebrews understood it back then. And with that said, uh, I want us to think about what does mercy look like? One, when God has mercy towards us. But actually, firstly, I kind of want to look at what it looks like for us to have mercy towards others. So, it's really touch and go, isn't it? There we go. Fine. Um, so, the thing about mercy, um, I wanted to have a look at the relationship between uh, David and Saul. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with the story of David and Saul. Kind of, maybe so, maybe not. Um, so, after David had come back from killing Goliath um, and obviously fighting with the Phil- Philistines, um, obviously Saul was the king at the time. Um, and there was supposed to be a massive celebration of Saul's victory because this was supposed to be all about Saul. Saul was the king. And so they'd arranged for women to come out and sing for Saul and basically sing praises of how great Saul is because he's defeated the Philistines and the Israelites are free. And what actually happened is that Saul came, obviously, with David alongside him, thinking, yes, this is all going to be about me. And actually what they sang was the words that say this, Saul has killed thousands and David tens of thousands. And from there, it was downhill downhill from there um, it, it sparked a, a sense of jealousy in Saul um, and it spiraled it spiraled to a point where he continued to chase David at every opportunity and he was trying to kill him he was trying to kill him off he was trying to murder him at every opportunity and David became good friends with uh, Saul's son Jonathan and so Jonathan would sort of tell him when whenever Saul was coming after him whenever the enemy was coming to kill him and so David found ways to evade Saul from killing him on, on numerous, numerous occasions. And bear me. And so, yeah. So, and so when, when um, he'd returned, obviously with that happening we then see a situation where actually there is a further account of where Saul is about to go and kill David 
And in that account, we get that in in First Samuel. First Samuel twenty-four. There you go. Okay, so first First Samuel twenty-four. Um, I want us to go through it. I want us to kind of read that account, and and so so walk with me and read with me. I know it might be. I don't know if it's hard. To, for you guys to see all that, but you're going to have to turn to your Bible for me with, with me uh, in First Samuel. So First Samuel chapter 24. Um, and when Samuel returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of en- Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfold, by the way, where there was a cave and Saul and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, "Here's your day of the Lord." Said, "Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you." Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward, David, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. After David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this, this day... Your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And the same told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no way, no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But um, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be the judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And and Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you repaid me with good, whereas I repaid you evil. And you declared this day how you have dealt with me, how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day and establish in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. 
and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So there we have this scenario where, mind you, a bit of back, a bit of backstory. Um, David had become, obviously after defeating Goliath, he'd become one of the, devote, most, one of the most devoted people to Saul. Um, that's how the Bible depicts him. He, there's a point where he was helping Saul, where Saul had a troubled spirit in him, and he came out to, to sing for him. And then obviously he, he came out when um, Goliath came about. So he was someone who was really devoted to the king. He had no nothing in his heart that was evil towards the king. And so you'd think, why would Saul be going after to kill this guy? And mind you, at this point, David had even married his his daughter. David was with Saul was with Saul's daughter at this point as well. And so it's actually ridiculous when you think about a scenario where he was constantly trying to kill him. And David has this opportunity to go, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to get you. This is my time. I've got you. You're there, right there. Could have, boom, could have been over. And he, and he holds back and he doesn't. He doesn't do it. And, and I think it's important, that I guess, we give context to how the, new, how the Old Testament is set up where a lot, you'd get a lot of situations like this and you know, people would actually go ahead and kill and, and, and destroy them and it would actually be a, sometimes in some situations it would be a command of, of God for them to obviously overtake and overthrow them um, but in this particular scenario David specifically doesn't do that doesn't do that and I, I, and I think it's actually God's providence and, and wanting to show us um, this, this act of mercy what it means and I think what's really important is that obviously David understood God's sovereignty he understood God's sovereignty and he learned and to live and bask in God's mercy. He was able to say, here, he said, God's going to judge you, not me. It's not, it's not for me to do it, it's for God to judge you. And so he left it in God's hand and he was able to trust God. And he trusted God enough to say, I don't need to take my own back. I can have mercy. I can have mercy and I can, and I can be confident in the fact that I'm not having the mickey taken out of me. Because this is bigger than me. This is bigger than, than, than just me. And, and that's how we saw it. And that's how we need to see it. And the other thing that really helped David um, to have mercy, to have the mercy he did, and to understand his position, was he knew the fallibility of man. He knew how weak we are. He, he actually understood, I guess, within himself, um, how messed up we actually are. Um, he knew enough to, to know that Saul was, e- was equally capable of that. And perhaps... He even knew that he was equally capable of that. And that helps him to actually have mercy, to really have mercy on, on soul. Because nothing is more humbling than us realising that actually you haven't met the standards that you set up for everyone around you. That can happen a lot. I don't know about you guys. I, I know I've felt that before, where actually you set up so many standards and expect of, of, of people around you. And when you see yourself fall below that standard... How dare you not have mercy on others? How dare you not, not extend same, the same grace that you desperately need to others? I think part of our issue as humans is um, we expect people to be God. And God doesn't expect that of you. In fact, he knows you can't do it because you can't. <laughs> and so, but, but actually understanding that, knowing that actually people are not God they're never going to be able to reach the standard of God and never going to be able to be perfect like God should ease the, the ability to, to be able to have mercy on other people. Um, Any time now? 
I'll tell you what, I might rely on you guys actually. Just switch it. Thank you. So, there's a tweet up here that I, I saw from um, Lecrae, for those of you who are on Twitter and that. Um, yeah, I, I saw a tweet from Lecrae and I thought it was actually really, really good. And he says this, he says, It's probably not wise to dislike people over what you heard when God hasn't disliked you over what he knows. Um, ain't, that, ain't that crazy? And I was, I was I, yeah, I, I thought it was such a profound tweet and, and it, it comes back to this point about mercy about this idea actually that I mean he, he's referring to what what you you know what you hear um, about about people and I guess talking about gossips and what have you but, but actually even more than that let's say what you do know let's say what you do know about someone else I think the same point um, sometimes actually still still sits there actually you've got to be careful about how quickly you are to jump to disliking someone to jump to saying oh you know I think x y and z about so and so um, because God knows a lot about you, and he does, he's never disliked you. He's never stopped loving you, never stopped liking you, um, and he never will. He never will. You can trust that. You can believe that. You, you can know that Jesus, he, he, he sent his son for us for that very purpose, people who are messy like us. And so actually, we have to, we have, to have mercy on others. Um, I think such an important point, as I say, a function of mercy is introspection to be able to look at yourself, to be able to see yourself and say, I'm not perfect, I don't meet that standard, I don't meet everything, I don't meet every standard, and so how can I expect everyone else to do so? That would be hypocritical. And I think, because the only way we really um, do mercy well is by understanding the value of it. We understand its true value. I understand how much I desperately need it when I look at myself in the mirror. I know I desperately need mercy. And so it helps me to give mercy because I know how everybody else desperately needs it. So, um, there we are. Cool. So, um, and we see God's demands for us to be merciful in Scripture. Um, and I want to touch on a few of those scriptures. So you have Ephesians 4.31. And that says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then you have Luke 6.36. It says, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. And then we have James 2. Uh, 12 to 13 that says so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy but mercy triumphs over judgment the message throughout scripture is constantly about God's mercy to his people scripture tells us a lot about the pride of man the failure of man but it tells us even more it shouts about God's mercy for man constantly we see it in the, with the Israelites how much they continued to be... They were so flaky. They were so flaky. One moment, God would bless them, and they're like, oh, thank you, God, we love that, that's great. Yeah, we're going to do our own thing. Um, and then and you'd have that cycle again and again and again, and, and God would say, don't go and worship idols, don't go and worship idols. Like, um, you know, don't hit this rock, I'm going to hit this rock. <laughs> and they, they were just constantly, constantly back and forth. And, and actually, when we are true to ourselves, that's kind of what we are. We're a little bit like that as well. We're, we're, we're inconsistent. We're constantly back and forth. We're constantly failing, falling short of God's standards. And another scripture that I had that I really liked was um, 1 Peter 
So 1 Peter 3, 8, and that says, Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, who is, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that you, so you are, so, so when you are slandered, slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. God bless his word. And yeah, I, I just, I, I love that scripture as I was going through it and I was thinking of scriptures on mercy, on the importance of actually this, this idea of mercy is so important to our testimony, to everybody else. When people are actually, you know, because the standard of the world is to hit, is to repay evil with evil, is to fight back. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like fight back and, and, and actually the scriptures tend us to have mercy to, check, to turn the other cheek. Um, and it says how much we would get slandered for it. So this idea, as I say, of like actually doing good, a lot of people have difficulty with it because it's like, no, 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 I'm not going to have it. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard a phrase. I, I remember when I was young in school and it was like a common phrase whenever people would get into a fight, they say, oh, I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have it. And you know, you know that, 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 was supposed to mean, that was supposed to mean that if it was me, I would never have that. I'd hit back. And, and, and that was a common phrase that you'd use to try and spark a fight. You spark because you know it, it, would, it would hit a, a certain, it would kindle a certain anger in people. And sometimes, and, and, and that's the world, that's sometimes the world. It's like, oh, how can, you, how can they do that to you? Oh, I would never. Oh, I would never. You should do something about that. And... You know, I think the, the, the difficulty with, or not difficult, but, but one of the things we have to think about with mercy is that there is a balance. There's a balance between justice, fairness, what is true justice, and, and mercy. And, and actually, when we have the right context about mercy with God, it looks very bleak for us. It looks very bleak in the sense that actually when you have a fair reflection of what justice means, what, what, what would be fair for God to give us? What would be fair for God to give you? Because a lot of people will say, oh, I deserve this. I can't believe a God that's supposed to be kind would X, do X, Y, and Z. But what does it mean? If, 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 God, if we were to say, actually, the God of the universe who holds the highest standards and says that actually the wages of sin is death, what would that mean for you if he was to give you what you deserve? If he was to say, fair, all right, let me give you what, what, what you asked for. It's, this is you. This is your choice. If you was to do that, what does that look like for us? And so I want to touch on um, God's mercy towards us. In some circles, uh, people see God as just a teasing tyrant. He's this deity who's up there, who's just losing his temper every couple of minutes and then toying with us um, with the crumbs, with, about the crumbs that he's going to give us on a daily basis. But the writers of scripture thought about him in a different way. So in Exodus, they talked about God and described him as merciful, or in other translations, it's compassionate. 
Um, and it says he's gracious, it says slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And people sometimes um, have said that God is always angry in the Old Testament and then he got nicer in the New Testament. But I would argue actually he's been the same. It's been the same throughout. And so I just want to touch on the Hebrew phrase slow to anger. Um, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew translation is Eric Apaim. And that basically means long nose. Um, so in Hebrew culture, you would describe someone as hot-nosed whenever they got angry. Um, and so, for example, when, Potiphar's, uh, when Potiphar thought that Joseph had slept with his wife, um, the Bible says that um, his nose burned hot in Genesis. So his nose burned hot because it was the idea that you get really hot and your nose gets hot. So the, the scripture then describes, so the scripture describes someone as long-nosed meant that they were long-suffering because it takes ages for a longer nose to get hot. And so that actually is the um, understanding of when we use the phrase slow to anger. It's this idea that actually in the Hebrew they call God a long nose. Because so, it, it takes for ages for him, for him to get angry. Um, and it's fair to say that God was angry a lot of the times in scripture. I think we can't avoid, we can't avoid that. That is definitely fair to say. But with good reason. Absolutely with good reason. Um, you had mankind constantly trying to ruin everything he'd created. Um, that was like the MO for the Israelites, constantly just going back and forth and doing things that God had told them not to do. Um, but what we also see is God's constant opportunity. Constantly. He's given opportunity to repent. He's given opportunity to change. He was constantly doing it, constantly calling people to have this opportunity. We see it with Pharaoh. We see it with Pharaoh when Moses was constantly speaking to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. And the amount of opportunities and opportunities and opportunities that God would give him um, to turn. And yet we're just like that. We're just like that. How many opportunities do we get? How many opportunities does God give us every day where we fail and actually what we deserve, we don't get? We don't get. We don't get what we deserve. We get more. We get better. And the other way to think about mercy is that sometimes God gives us up to our desires. Um, and that's, the, that's equally the same thing that we see in, with Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's scenario was he was oppressing the people of Israel. And God was saying to him, let my people go. And he didn't let them go. And time after time, he'd say, let my people go. And he's like, no, 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 because I'm greedy, I'm, power, I'm prideful, it's all about power to me, you know, it's all about me. And God then gave him over to his desires in the end. Gave him over to his desires. Even when, even when he let the people go, he then changed his mind and wanted to chase after them and pursue them. And, and God gave him over to that. Gave him over to that where the Red Sea then closed in and took, took them out. But equally, actually, when you think about what God's mercy was in the scenario where they had the ten plagues, where, the plague, where, where there was different plagues coming in hitting the, the people of Egypt, and these are Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh is king at this time, and he's allowing all these plagues to come in, and God says, just let my people go, and the plagues will stop. Just, just, just let my people go, and the plagues will stop, and he's like, nah, nah, my pride, my pride is too much, I can't, I can't do that. And he doesn't, and rather he'd let his people suffer because of it. And imagine the mercy God is having on him constantly, constantly. But what does the mercy then look like for the others, for the people of Egypt, who are suffering these plagues, who are going through it? 
Um, when I was thinking about uh, Mercy, I, I've been watching um, a certain series. I don't know if some of you know this series, Snowfall. And um, Snowfall is basically a story. It's a, it's a crime um, drama, and it's a story set in Los Angeles in the 80s where there was a crack cocaine epidemic. Um, and it focuses on a young man um, played by Damson Idris who goes by the name of Franklin Saint. And he's basically built a life of riches in drug trafficking, cocaine. But what you see throughout the series is his desire to become legitimate. He wants to legitimise the lifestyle. He wants to leave the drug trafficking business. Um, but he's too consumed by the riches that it brings. He's too consumed by the money that, that they'd made. He's so consumed, um, even to the extent that when a significant sum then gets taken, $73 million, um, to be precise, by a rogue enforcement agent, um, he does everything to get it back. And everything means he allows for people around him to die, to, to be killed, including his family, some of his family members. And at one point, towards the end, it, it shows um, how he threatens to kill his best friend. He threatens to kill his best friend who was part of the business with him and had left the business at this point um, and was trying to be legitimate, was trying to actually invest back into the, into the neighbourhood and actually stop the very thing that they started. And he threatens him and, and actually force, is trying to force him to, to send the money, to give him the money that he so desperately needs. And his friend says, no, I can't, can't give it to you. And at this point, his mother's in prison. Um, his mother's in prison. His mother had said to his friend, don't give him the money because it's destroying him. It was destroying him. It was what destroyed everyone. It was what destroyed everyone around him. And it's quite this, it's quite this sobering moment where after that scene passes towards the end, you see him and he's, he's got nothing, absolutely nothing. He's lost absolutely everything. And you see him with a bottle in his hand and he's at a point where his property is about to be repossessed. His property being repossessed, his friend sees him and says, look, don't worry, I can pay, I can pay this off for you. Let, let, me, let me sort this out. And he says, no, no, I don't. I'm free. He says, I'm free. I've got no chains on me. That's the, those are the last words. And for me, in some way, you think, well, what's that got to do with anything? What's that got to do with mercy? I, when you try and watch things in a redemptive way, um, I, I was thinking in my, in my mind, wow, like... God had to make sure he lost absolutely everything for him to understand and actually be free from the hold of money, from the hold that the riches had, had on him, like the things that he was doing, that he was willing to do to destroy his whole family. Like, in a way, having to lose everything was God's mercy on him to a degree. And it's crazy because you'd think, well, you know, losing all that stuff, isn't that, well, that's what he deserves, right? Isn't that as much as he deserves? But actually, arguably, wouldn't he deserve death? Wouldn't he deserve death? He'd killed everyone around him. He'd deserve imprisonment or mental torment or whatever you can think of. But actually, he gets this opportunity to continue to live to a much lower quality of life, obviously, but he gets to live and he's free and he's not actually entrapped by what was killing him. And it made me think about Romans, Romans uh, 1, and actually 18 to 32, but I've got only 24 and to 26 up there. But I'm going to read from 18 
to, um, to, to 26, so we get the context. And it says, for, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven amongst all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly perceived uh, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And it's crazy that, that we see that happening sometimes where God lifts his hands and says, fine, do it your way. Have it, have it your way, and, and sometimes that, that's what can happen with us when we're so belligerent, we're so we we're, we're so um, disobedient with God, and, and God can say, "Well, fine, do it your way." And you see yourself, and you get yourself into a massive rut, and, and, and things start to can, things can really can really go wrong. More so in your heart than in anything else. But sometimes God can allow that to happen. Almost as an act of mercy for you to see how desperately you need him, how desperately man is wicked, how desperately we fall short. And in preparing this and reading this, I recently saw a thread on uh, Twitter of this young Nigerian lady who was basically expressing her pain um, and her annoyance with God, having decided not to um, have faith anymore, having decided not to believe in God anymore. And I thought actually it'd be probably quite helpful for us to have a look at what she says and, and, and go through it and she says this she says I can't lie away from the things I saw aside uh, from the church one of the biggest reasons I stopped being a Christian was uh, there we go was finally um, was finally accepting that God uh, consumed God, that God had favorites, and that regardless of how much you prayed or believed, if you're not his fave, you're not his fave. As a child, I was always told that I would pray and ask, that if I would pray and ask God for whatever I wanted, he would answer me. Uh, when I was a child, and I didn't, and I didn't have much to ask for. Um, sorry, guys, I don't know why it's like not said. Fair enough. So I asked for, but every single thing I prayed for, asked for, I never got. Not one single thing I prayed for. Heck, it's almost like I went ahead. Every time I went ahead and prayed to pray for something I really wanted, God would take it away. Uh, God would take away my chance of getting that thing. It's funny, but I was heartbroken a lot because I truly believed that God was supposed to love everyone equally, or so I thought. Growing up, with unanswered prayers, after unanswered prayers, it finally hit me one day, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Meaning say, no, if you no be fave, nothing for you. 
if, if you like, pray from now, reach 500 years, nothing for you. My life in church was a lie. And so you mean that I had been praying and fasting and begging God all my life and, it, and he wasn't answering me simply because he had picked his favorites and apparently I wasn't among. LMAO. When you think about it, it's quite cruel. The gamble of hoping on a God that cannot be bothered about you. Why I don't like being prayed for, and that's why I don't like being prayed for. In fact, it fills me with rage every time somebody I care about or respect starts to pray for me. But I respond because maybe they might be a fave. And if they, can, if they pray on my behalf, he fits manage consider me. Uh, besides that, I don't bother. The first time my heart broke was when they gave my admission slots to someone else, but because my dad wouldn't pay a bribe. It pained me to my heart because I prayed, but beyond praying, I put in work and smashed that exam, and yet he let them cheat me. It's why I don't fear death or dying. Interesting, Abby. It's because I pray for it and know, say as usual, he no goes cuckoo answer me. So maybe I'll be here for a long time. I don't pray anymore, and I wish people stopped talking to me about God and his supposed love. Plus, if he cannot answer my mother, who wholeheartedly believes in him and lives her life for him, then you no see no hope for me. It breaks my heart to watch my mother pray as, and believe so much in a God that doesn't rate her. One angel, one angel fit them bond my foul, Seth, we, but we move, Sha. So there's some pidgin English in, in that, for those of you who, who will know, but the, the, the gist of it is that she was saying how much she felt that God had abandoned her, had, had, had betrayed her, and not answered her prayer. And she'd had clearly some sticky situations in life. And that kind of broke my heart. It broke my heart, actually, when I, when I initially read it and thinking through, through about it. And it breaks my heart even more so because a lot of us have either had moments like that or perhaps are even close to having moments like that if we're not there already. And like I mentioned before, I mentioned this scenario about a friend that you would walk through every day who would betray you for a couple months' wages. A lot of us are like that with God. In fact, that was exactly what Judas did. Betray God for literally four months worth of wages. And yet, when Jesus um, was having a, a meal and, and he was met by Mary, the sister of Martha, she poured on him the alabaster box. And the contents of the alabaster box that she said, this guy's worthy of being worshipped. The contents of that box was actually worth about... Uh, nearly three times the amount that Judas got paid to betray Jesus. Jesus, Judas got paid 30 silver coins and actually the worth of the alabaster box was about 75 silver silver coins. And that was about a year's worth of wages. Life's work. And we don't always see God as actually worthy of being worshipped, as worthy of being praised because we don't have proper context. The context is you never deserve anything in the first place. That's sometimes a hard pill to swallow. And it's because we have this automatic right of entitlement. That's, that can't be true. I'm not that bad. I'm, not, I'm like, what, I'm really, I really didn't, like, didn't deserve nothing? Yeah. Yeah, you really start, that's your starting point. 
Your starting point is actually, it was nothing. Nothing was, was owed to you. But God gives it to you. God gives you mercy freely. Sometimes mercy looks different. It looks different for every one of us, what God's mercy is. And, God, and Jesus has never had any ill feeling towards you. And when you think about Judas, when Judas actually had um, betrayed Jesus, there was mercy available for him. There was. It was genuinely. God's mercy was available for him the moment he did it. Right after the moment he did it, and he refused it. He didn't take God's mercy. And I want you guys to know that actually God isn't content for us to sit down in our self-destruction. Mercy is available for you. Mercy is available for me. It's available for us. And so therefore we have to give mercy to others too. And finally I was thinking about the scripture of um, Romans, Romans 2. Romans 2 says this. It says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. Folks, you can't afford not to give mercy. And you certainly can't afford to not accept it too. Mercy is available for you. And for some of us, God's mercy means that we have to miss that job. Literally, that's, that's what God's mercy means for some of us. For some of us, it means that we have to miss that partner. That was a potential... For some of us, it means that we have to stay in that house that we don't want to be in, that we're sick of being in. Um, for some of us, it looks different. It looks different for, for every one of us what God's mercy is. And ultimately, God's mercy is there so that it won't, so that this life, so that where you are won't destroy you in the end. That's what God's mercy is. Actually, making sure you're, you're in a situation where your desires, your, in, your innate desires that can fail you, that will fail you if you rely on them, if you trust in them, and if you're not trusting on Jesus Christ, he's there having mercy on you so that it doesn't destroy you. And we see the greatest sense of mercy with Jesus at the cross. He says, forgive them, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, because we don't. People, we don't know what we're doing, and, and yet Jesus has this mercy for us. And so actually when we think about God's goodness, we think about God's grace, or we, rather, let's put it this way, we, we lament about God's lack of grace in our view, what we say is God's, God's lack of grace. Let's never forget, never forget Lamentations, Lamentations 3, which says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you because you're never short of them. I thank you because you know more than we do. You make better decisions than we do. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to live, to bask, to trust in that, to move forward in that, and actually to be able to have mercy on others.
to have mercy on others and to trust in your mercy for us. Mercy that you've had through your son on the cross and the mercy that you continue to have for us every day as you're changing us, as you're making us more like you, Lord. I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us to love others. I pray you'd help us to be more patient with others, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.